0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 18. We're going to look at this uh, little episode with Jesus and the Sadducees. This a strange scenario they paint for Jesus. You see they're entitled this, Seven Brothers for One Bride. I, f- I felt so wonderful about that title. I was telling Kim, you know, I thought it was so clever. But I don't know if anybody's getting that because, you know, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is a musical And uh, so I'm playing off that, seven brothers for one bride. Well, hopefully it'll be clear when we read the text. Verses 18 to 27 of God's word from the Gospel of Mark. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, Easter comes early this year, uh, relatively early. uh, Only in three weeks we'll be talking about the resurrection, but we're going to get really early on it and talk about the resurrection today as the Sadducees brought this controversy, so-called controversy, uh, to Jesus' attention in Jesus' day. Now, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he tells us this. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember, that's what the Sadducees said. There is no resurrection of the dead. The Paul continues, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ. whom he did did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Or if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul uses some very, very strong words about the resurrection, about those who say there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, he says, then our faith is in vain, our faith is futile, and we are of all people most to be pitied. People should look at us if there is no resurrection and feel pity for us. They should feel sorrow for us. Well, I have two points today because I do believe there's a resurrection. Of course, the Bible speaks to us of the resurrection. And so my two points are this. I want to tell you, first of all, why the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection, are to be pitied. And then, second of all, why Christians are not to be pitied. Well, first, let's look at the Sadducees. It's important to understand who they were. We don't have a lot of information about the Sadducees. They basically disappeared... After 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed, but they were a religious group uh, and also a political party in Israel. They were—it was this group of people. Who, they were—it was composed of men who were from the arist, aristocratic class. They were highly educated priestly families. Uh, some of them served on the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the supreme judicial and administrative council of the Jews. So Jesus here in this week that we're, we're reading about here at the end of Mark, he's going to appear before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to render judgment upon him. They're a different group than the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were rivals. Uh, but most importantly, as is noted here, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in judgment after death. And Mark, uh, as I said, notes that in verse 18 there. They say that there is no resurrection. Basically what they believed was that the soul died when the body died. So you're basically food for worms when you die, and that's the end of it all. Well, Jesus uh, is approached by them, and they are asking Jesus this really bizarre question, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But Jesus renders a judgment upon them, And it's a pretty strong judgment that he renders. In verse 24, Jesus says that the Sadducees are wrong. He says, this is why you're wrong. Now, the word wrong there uh, is a bit more descriptive than just our word wrong. It literally means to cause to wander off the path. So what Jesus is saying here, what he's accusing them of, is that they're led astray. They've been led astray. They've been misled. They've been deceived. What they understand and the teaching that they're uh, promoting is a deception. That They've gone astray. They've been misled. Then, in verse 27, he repeats the accusation. He says, you are quite wrong. Now, the second time he adds that adjective in, our, in my English version, it says quite, and that means much or many. It's the word from which we de- derive our prefix poly- so if someone's a, a polytheist, that means they worship many gods. Uh, we, we go, there's polygamy, which means uh, the practice of marrying multiple spouses. Jesus is not only saying that the Sadducees are misled, he is saying you are much misled. You're very misled. That's what he says at the end. Now he gives us two reasons why they are very misled. In verse 24, he says to them, is this not the reason you're wrong, you're misled, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? So two things he says about them. The reason they're misled is they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Let's look at these in turn. Now, first of all, he says they did not know the Scriptures. Another distinction of the Sadducees, not only did they not believe in the resurrection or the afterlife or a judgment after Death, but they also uh, were very limited in what scriptures they accepted. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their scriptures. They only accepted these first five books. Now, one would think, if you only had five books to master, if that were your scriptures, that you would be able to understand it. But Jesus points out, that they didn't even understand this much of the Scriptures. You know, the Old Testament has got 39 books in it, the Pharisees and the other Jews and even Christians today. We've got 39 Old Testament books with which we can learn from and grow from. Well, the Sadducees only had five, and they couldn't even master that much. Now, you'll note, and just give you a little side note here, when Jesus answers them and he gives scriptural proof, uh, he uses the book of Exodus. He refers to the burning bush where Moses appears before God he doesn't go to Job or Psalms or to the prophets uh, which speak directly to the subject of resurrection and eternal life but Jesus answers them from the scriptures that they accept so he's being uh, very wise there uh, he's being uh, very clever in the way that he approaches their argument he, he goes on their own turf uh, the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament and that's where he debates with them and that's where he shows them that they're wrong. In uh, in uh, Exodus 3, 6, that's the passage that he's referring to, uh, he uses that to build his case for the resurrection. And I want you to see this. I want you to notice how seriously Jesus took the Scriptures. He proves his case from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, at this point. at at Moses appearing before the burning bush. He builds the case for the resurrection on just the tense of the verb in the passage. In that passage it says, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's when we sang the God of Abraham prays this morning because Jesus uh, referred to that passage. Jesus points out from this passage that the verse does not say... God is not saying there, I was the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why did he say it that way? Because they were all still living. They weren't dead. They had been raised. They were living eternally. And so God is still their God. And that's the point Jesus makes to them. Now, we cannot stress the point enough. It is vitally important that we study the Scriptures. If you're struggling spiritually today and you're not spending time in God's Word, then you need not ask why you're struggling spiritually. This is your spiritual food, God's Word. And if you starve yourself, you're not going to be healthy. It makes sense. Surely we can understand that concept. We go without food. We're not going to be healthy. Well, the Word of God is our spiritual food. If we cut ourselves off from that, we're not going to be healthy. We're not going to grow. Now, you might think, well, you know, sometimes it just seems like drudgery reading the Scriptures, and I don't feel like I'm getting much out of it. I've experienced this in the past few months I have just finished reading the first five books. I've got a reading plan where I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I'll start it from Genesis and working my way through. And, you know, Genesis is very interesting. Got a lot of different accounts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and others, and Joseph, and really good stuff. And then you, Exodus, you got the plagues, and leaving, and then you get to Leviticus and Numbers. And, man, it just starts getting to be uh, drudgery. You got lists of numbers and armies and. All these laws that just, you wonder, what in the world does it have to do with me? Well, think of it this way. Sometimes eating is a wonderful experience. You know, last night we went over to a friend's house and, and uh, he grilled a steak. And man, I like that. That was really good. And he did a really nice job on the steak. And, and it was a delight to eat that meal. But sometimes you eat not because you know, you're having this wonderful five-star meal. Sometimes you eat because it's... You eat oatmeal in the morning. I mean, what's exciting about oatmeal? But you know, if you if you don't eat it, uh, you're not going to be healthy. You shouldn't skip that important meal of the day. Oatmeal. Nothing... No frills about it, but it's healthy and it's good for you. The same is true of the Bible. Just reading it. Engaging in the discipline of exposing yourself to the Scriptures, to submitting to God's Word to say, you know, Lord, I'm going to take part of my day out and serve you in this way. I'm going to read the Scriptures to hear from you. And just the, just doing that and having that attitude uh, is, is worth something to you. It, it's good for you. Now, reading you know, numbers, census of the people who were going into the Promised Land, it may not be very exciting. and You read all these Hebrew names but it's good for you. It's food for your soul, even though you may not perceive it. You may not get excited about eating oatmeal, but you can't have a steak every meal. That's not good for you either. Now, the Bible is very important. 2 Timothy 3 tells us, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, "'As for you, Timothy, "'continue in what you have learned "'and have firmly believed, "'knowing from whom you learned it, "'and how from childhood you have been acquainted "'with the sacred writings, the Scriptures.'" which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, Paul is telling Timothy, read the Word. Remember the Scriptures. It's the way that you can be equipped. It's the way that you can be complete. It's the way that that you can get reproof and correction and be trained in righteousness. If we cut ourselves off from that, it's no wonder that we would struggle spiritually. Now, he, the writer of Hebrews uh, really uh, encourages his audience. In chapter 5, he says, about this we have much to say. He's been explaining some spiritual concepts to them. And he's saying, you know, there's so much more we could say about it but it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's another way of saying God's Word. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I want to encourage you all to spend time in God's Word. You know what's a pity is to be like the Sadducees, to have the Scriptures at your disposal, but to not read the Scriptures. I mean, it's easy nowadays. You can have the Scriptures on your phone. You can take it with you wherever you go, not to mention all the Bibles you have in your house. It's always there. You can have a reading plan. These programs have reading plans, and the phone itself will remind you when you're supposed to read and what you're supposed to read. So really, we have no excuse. God's Word is there for us. Eat your meal every day. Tim Keller said, We should take the teaching and the very words of the Bible very seriously. Jesus built his case on the tense of one word, the verb am, in one verse of the Bible. Jesus' attitude toward the Scripture is one of complete trust and even minute obedience. We cannot follow him and trust him without adopting for ourselves his attitude toward the Bible. So if we, want to, we don't want to be misled like the, Pharisees, or like the Sadducees, we need to know the Scriptures. Now, it also tells us here that, that they did not know the power of God. Two things they didn't know. They didn't know the scriptures. They did not know the power of God. Now, another thing about the Sadducees, not only did they they believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in life after death, they didn't believe in judgment, Uh, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, they also denied divine action in the world. They didn't believe God did anything much in the world. They were kind of the deists of their day. God you know, Adeus believes that God created everything and just left it, left it alone. He's the clockmaker. He wound it up, made it, wound it up, and left it for itself. Sadducees, that was similar to what they believed. God didn't do any kind of wonderful actions in the world. They scoffed at those who believed in God's powerful working beyond the limits of this world. That's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, that should sound familiar to us all. Their outlook was essentially that of modern, secular man who cannot accept a God whose work goes beyond present human experience. And they mock those ignorant, or they say they're old-fashioned, who do believe God works in our world. Now, like many people today, the Sadducees ridicule the idea of the afterlife because they could not imagine it. Why would we want to float around all day on clouds playing harps? I had a lady in England who came to my church, and when she started coming, she said, oh, I just believe we're food for worms. When we die, that's it. She was a modern-day Sadducee. Now, they approach Jesus, and they paint this crazy scenario of a woman marrying seven brothers. And it seems very odd to us. Why would anybody do this sort of thing? But we see in verse 19 that they're citing Moses uh, in reference to this practice. Now we have to understand the law behind this scenario that the Sadducees paint for Jesus. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And there it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This had a lot to do with the inheritance that went on, and the promised land was divvied up, and the inheritance stayed with the families. Well, they take this case, this scenario that Moses regulates in Deuteronomy, and they are taking it to an absurd, extreme level. In order to try to make the idea of resurrection look foolish and ridiculous, you can almost hear them snickering at Jesus as they come to him and say, Okay, this guy, he's got, uh, you know, he dies, and then his brother marries, and then another, and and they're almost laughing out loud by the time they finish this ridiculous scenario of seven brothers dying and this wife dying, and then they say, Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? They think they're so smart. They think they're, they're so arrogant. They think they're going to trick Jesus. And this is probably an argument they've had with the Pharisees, and they've stumped the Pharisees on it. So they think they're going to get Jesus as well. Now, they mock the idea of a resurrection here. Why would they do that? Well, they do it because it exceeds the capacity of the human understanding. It, it, it's not part of our normal uh, experience as humans on planet Earth resurrection. And the same is true for miracles and creation, the the idea that God created all things in the space of six days just by speaking it into existence. See, people who have trouble with these ideas, like the Sadducees, they cannot see beyond their own human sense and experience. You know, in the early 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, the modernist movement came and they said, there, none of the supernatural stuff is true. Even within the church, people stopped believing in the miracles, stopped believing in the virgin birth, stopped believing in creation because they would not accept anything that science couldn't prove. Well, as Calvin says on this passage, these things like resurrection, creation, miracles, etc., will be incredible to us till our minds rise to the contemplation of the boundless power of God. Let me explain that quote. How can God raise the dead, create the universe in six days, or turn water into wine? How, How can a virgin conceive and bear a child, much less the sinless Son of God? How can Jesus walk on water and give sight to the blind, to heal the lame, to raise people from the dead? Well, if you believe in an all-powerful God, if you can conceive of that, then these things are possible. You can believe it. The Sadducees were limited because they could not see beyond this natural world, and they did not understand the Scriptures. Therefore, they were led astray in their thinking and living. That's a deadly combination, to not know the Scriptures and to not believe in the power of God. It's they couldn't, they couldn't accept resurrection based on those two things. It becomes impossible to understand Christianity if you don't know the Scriptures and you don't believe in the power of God. Calvin goes on and says this, we learn that those men form and express just and wise sentiments respecting the heavenly kingdom who join the power of God with the Scriptures. Let me explain that a little bit. He's saying when when men... Uh, when men understand the power of God and they mix that with the knowledge of the Scriptures, then they are going to understand and and be able to grasp and have right understanding respecting the heavenly kingdom, respecting what God's doing in this world, what what God's doing in this universe. You've got to have those two things, an understanding of the Scriptures and the power of God. So these Sadducees were to be pitied because they couldn't see it. And we see people all around us who cannot accept the things of God. They're spiritually discerned, and it comes—it has to come with a faith, with a submission to God's word and this all-powerful God. Well, the Sadducees are to be pitied, but Christians—the good news—the Christians are not to be pitied. And Jesus gives us many reasons why, specifically referring to the resurrection, because He explains. We learn some things about the resurrection and the afterlife from what Jesus teaches here. First of all, there is a resurrection. Christians are not to be pitied because there is a resurrection. Their faith is not futile. It's not in vain. And we're not to be pitied because we have something to hope for. There is life after death. We, our our persons, our individual persons, we who are believers, will experience a resurrection, eternal life. And it will be us. We will enjoy it. Now, some people have inferred from Jesus' teaching here about that there's not going to be marriage in heaven, uh, that there will be no memory of early life or relationships that will uh, just be there forever playing our harp on the cloud, so to speak. And uh, But that's not the case. If you look at Jesus, for example, when he was raised from the dead, uh, he had a physical body. He wasn't just a ghost. Uh, he, he ate you know, when he when he appears to the disciples, when they're meeting in the room, he comes through the door, which is amazing, but uh, my, my uh, New Testament teacher described it, don't think of him as a ghost passing through the wall, think of him as more of a lead pipe passing through water. He was more real, more solid than the wall, and he walks through it. I, I can't even conceive what he was talking about, but don't think of casper the ghost when you think of Jesus' glorified body he was physical he was he came in the room and he said uh, you know don't be afraid it's me do you have anything to eat and they gave him a piece of fish and he ate it why would why would the writer like luke share that little bit of information it seems so ridiculous that jesus has appeared he's risen from the dead he appears to the disciples and the first thing he says is i'm hungry you got something to eat well, it's because Jesus was real. He was, a, he was a person. He had a body, and he was still Jesus. They recognized him. In the afterlife, we will, be, we will retain our personality, our rationality, even our physicality. Yet, they will all be transfigured and glorified, all flaws and imperfections gone. Maybe that's why they often had trouble recognizing Jesus. Now, it tells us here not only there is a resurrection, but there is no marriage Jesus says, because they'll be like the angels, it says. The angels aren't married. That's what he means. He doesn't mean we'll become angels, and that's not true. Some people like to say that, when, especially when a child dies. You know, it's a very sad time, and sometimes people will try to cope with that and say, oh, the Lord just needed another angel in heaven. Well, it's a nice sentiment, but it's not true. We don't become angels when we die. We uh, get glorified bodies eventually but we're with Jesus. We're people. We're still there, and we're different than angels. But like angels, he means that, just like angels, we, we don't have marriage in heaven. The angels don't get marriage, and neither will we, because there's no need for marriage in heaven. Uh, marriage, one of the reasons for marriage is procreation. And uh, since we'll live for eternal eternity, there's no reason to procreate. We'll live forever. And the population will never decrease or increase, which is good for those who've been married more than once. You don't have to worry about getting to heaven and you know who you're going to live with. Uh, it's it's great. The wonderful thing is it's a place of love. You know, marriage is uh, you're you're closest to that person. I mean, I can say that I love my wife and my children more than more than everybody else here. I have a, I have a preference for them. Uh, but in heaven, we won't have that. Everybody will love one another perfectly. We will have perfect relationships. It's, it's hard to even conceive. But we will all know one another fully, love one another perfectly, and marriage disappears because of that. Relationships will be, will be without jealousy or exclusion. We'll, we'll know and be known and love one another forever together. That only happens because of what Jesus did. You know, Jesus was excluded. He was cast to the side. He was His relationship with his heavenly father was broken so that we could enjoy this perfect relationship with everyone forever in heaven and in the new heavens and new earth with our glorified bodies. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus has done that for us? That nobody will be excluded. Nobody will be preferred. It will all be perfect love. So there's no marriage, and you know some people might say, "Well, that's that's really a bummer that there's no marriage." But it'll be it'll be so much better than we could even ask or imagine. The Bible tells us. And the third thing, briefly, uh, just the final thing about why Christians shouldn't be pitied is because our God is a covenant-keeping God. You know, yes, there's a resurrection, uh, and He proves it from Exodus three, and He he uses that, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." God had made a covenant with those men, starting with Abraham, and he reiterated it to Abraham's sons, Isaac and Jacob. He made precious promises to them, and he kept his promises. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham wasn't just looking for the promised land. You know, God promised him land and descendants. And the writer of Hebrews says he wasn't just looking for a a physical land, but he was looking for that, that country, that eternal country. He was looking for, for heaven, for the new heavens and new earth, when he, was with, when he could be with God forever. And God has kept that promise, and that promise is extended to us as well. And God keeps his promises. Because he raised Jesus from the dead, we, we will be raised as well. It's a promise of God. And that is why Christians are not to be pitied. We have something to look forward to. This life is not all there is. There's eternity to keep in mind. Men like Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, they claim that hope in the afterlife, in the resurrection, stifled caring about the serious matters of life. You ever heard them saying, you know, oh, he's, he's too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good? Uh, that's not the case. These men would say that, but they're wrong. When you believe as those atheists do, then the result is that, people live only for today and only for themselves. You know, if there's nothing beyond this life, what are you going to live for? If you're just going to die and be food for worms, what are you going to live for? Well, I'm going to live for myself and and I'm going to grab the gusto uh, for myself in this life and do whatever I want to do. And that has proven to be very, very destructive. As you can imagine, with a with a bunch of people in the world living only for today and only for themselves. But the fact of the matter is there is a direct relationship between belief in the life to come and ethical responsibility. People who believe that there's a life to come live in light of that. And it affects the way they live today. And it should affect the way that we as Christians live our lives. You know, if if there is a resurrection then we can live for Christ with reckless abandon. We don't have to hold back or worry about what the the culture says about us, Uh, living in this culture with completely different values. We can live without being self-conscious. We can live self-sacrificially. We can live courageously. We can attempt great things for God because there's a resurrection. If we're doing what God wants us to do, we can do it with all of our might because we're going to live forever. Isn't that wonderful to think about? Tim Keller said this. I love this quote. We live like him, like Jesus, self-sacrificially because all deaths done in his service, even physical ones, lead to resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened, it makes sense to give up your seat in the lifeboat. You know, we can live for the Lord with reckless abandon when you have that confidence that there's more to life than just the here and the now. But a future eternity, isn't that wonderful? We're not to be pitied. Uh, This truth is to be embraced, embraced in our lives, and let it affect the way that we live every day. May God impress that upon our hearts this morning, that we might uh, follow Jesus, not only follow him with our lives but follow Him uh, in His resurrection as well, and we will we put our trust and faith in Him. Let's pray together.